Hi everyone, I'm Caroline. This podcast is just me, an Irish girl, and her mates chatting the good, the bad, and the ugly. From county down to down under, I chat the highs, the lows, and the complete craziness of life as an expat in Sydney. Be prepared for the bumpy ride filled with lots of crack and hilarious stories along the way. I am delighted to have Gym Plus Coffee on board as our podcast sponsor. Gym Plus Coffee is Ireland's leading athleisure brand and community. They believe in socialising around exercise and have built a passionate global community who are committed to their make life richer philosophy. They believe in awesome things to do, an amazing crew to do things with and high quality gear to do things in. Their values and beliefs are everything I stand for and work towards building here in the County Down Under podcast, events and community here in Australia and internationally. As a podcast listener, you get an exclusive discount of 15% when you use the code CAROLINE15 online at gympluscoffee.com.au if you're in Australia or if you're elsewhere in the world. Check out gympluscoffee.com to find your online store. All right, today on the podcast, I am... Very lucky to have with me Tony Shaw. Tony and I have been talking back and forth for a very long time. And Tony is here to talk about something that is extremely important and something I'm very passionate about and something I think many of us abroad do not have enough knowledge on, only that I have um, been learning the history of Australia. As a teacher, I had no idea about what had happened um, in the years before I ever came here or my ancestors did. So Tony Shaw is part of the Stolen Generations. And I know that Tony, you told me to say generations because it's an ongoing thing. So Tony, I'm not going to talk much more. We're just going to go back um, to the beginning where if you wouldn't mind just giving a little bit of an overview of um, a brief history of Australia. I know that's quite a hard thing to do um but just from your own perspective and your family's perspective look yeah look thanks very much firstly for having me caroline i really appreciate it um do apologize for the the time that it's taken i've been an invalid for the last little while uh yeah look um the dynamic here in australia is is an interesting one in that it it was it was like as the word said it was quite dynamic and it's it's surprising how many people don't really know or understand the enormity of our past. Um, bearing in mind, too, that we, each, we all have a narrative. Um, you know, we've all ridden a rocky road to get to where we are at this moment in time. And we, have, we do have an affinity with the Irish community. I have very good friends that are from, from Ireland. Uh, indeed, my partner, former partner, was Irish. Um, and uh, we've got a little girl, Bridget. She's she's twenty now, um, and uh, it's it's been a uh, it's been a great little journey that one. But if you have a look at the enormity of what's happened here, fundamentally you must take people back to settlement. So you know, Western settlement here happened in 1788 uh, when Captain Cook came across from from England, 
uh, and he settled in Sydney Cove. In, um, and it's a contentious issue, the date in January 26, which is now recognised as Australia Day here. Uh, but a lot of our community don't recognise that date. So there's a big de- dis- discussion and debate going on about whether they change that date. And I think in the next two to three years it will become a reality um, and, you know, that January 26 will, will be no longer considered as Australia Day. But at that time of settlement, um, you know, there was arguably about one million Aboriginal people that were here in this great country, Uh some suggest 1.2 million, but the general consensus is around 1 million. Um, so Blood on the Wattle is a good book to read, and it tells you about the loss of population of Aboriginal people between 1800 and 1900, and that's like a little over 90 years. There was a census done in the 20s, and they struggled to find more than 45,000 Aboriginal people. So if you go to other countries and say, well, in this forthright nation of Australia that in just over 90 years we managed to do away with a million human beings through massacres, uh, introduced viruses and dislocation for land, from land, not many people would believe you. Uh, but it is the truth uh, and it's a, it's a shocking truth. But that blood on the wattle by Bruce Elder chronicles all of that history. Um, and so we've kind of built up from that number at around 1920 to around 500 to 600,000 today Aboriginal people in this country. Um, and uh, that fast, one of the fastest growing races in the world and um, one of the youngest as well. Um, but if you have a look at the stolen generations here in terms of our story, uh, I say generations. Um, yes, it, yes, it, it is ongoing, but historically, it's been around for uh, you know since the, the early 1900s. And um, John Howard, he was our former prime minister. He didn't understand the stolen generations because our community was constantly coming to their door and saying, "We want accountability for your behaviours." Uh, so what he did was he <clears throat> he had. Uh, Ronald Wilson, who was a former High Court judge here in Australia, write up a report, and that's available for you on the net as well. Uh, that's called the Bringing Them Home Report. It's a pretty big book, and it kind of uses a lot of case studies about um, people that were taken from their parents. Um, and what he's in, in the preamble of that, which is quite interesting, he said, look, for those of you that are coming to this story new, have a look at the preamble of that. Um, and it says that if you want to understand the genesis for the stolen generations here in Australia, you have to cast your mind back to an incident here in regional Perth in Western Australia um, uh, that happened with the former governor that was here in 1829, um, in May of uh, 1834, sorry, in May, in May of 1834, where there was a massacre that happened in a place called Pinjarra, south of Perth. And the powers at B that were in, in Britain had a look at this and they said, we need to pull up the reins in, in Australia in terms of the treatment of the natives, as they referred to us back then. Um, and they put in place uh, protection policies to protect our people. But it actually... 
led to our detriment um, because the protectionist policies led through to uh, the white Australia policy here in Australia that ran from around 1905 in WA, Western Australia, through to around 1948, and we lived under that. And the, the Aborigines protection uh, policies governed over it. And what it said, and it's available on the net for you too, if you look at Western Australia in particular, the 1905 Act came into place, Aborigines Act. We don't like the term Aborigines because it conjures up all the these policies and behaviours. Um, and it's quite confronting. It suggested that if you're a native in this country, that, um, and that was determined by your colour, so you're either a full-blooded Aboriginal person, right down to a 32 cast and even lower, um, you know, crazy things such as not being able to travel without permission, not being able to marry without permission, um, couldn't be in any community after five o'clock of the evening, had to be on a designated reserve. Uh, you couldn't vote, have alcohol, uh, all of these different things which were quite confronting. Um, and it was during that period of 1905 through to 48 where it was considered a good, good, good uh, process to take Aboriginal native children from their parents um, and the thinking was to bring him up in a Western ideal or us and have them educated and go to the workplace, knowing full that these Aborigines, full well that these Aborigines Acts suggested it was against the law to pay a native. Um, so slavery is alive and well here in this country. Um, and those Aborigines Acts, they came about as a result of our first Prime Minister here in Australia, who was Edward Barton. He actually got in a boat and he sailed to Geneva in Europe and he confronted the rest of the world and he said, look, in us in our new country of Australia, which came about in 1901, uh, we want to be seen as the first white country in the world. That if you come to Australia, you must be white, you must live white, marry white and so forth. He sails back to Australia. He was a year out of the, out of the loop and he confronts the rest of the nation here in Melbourne at the time. And this is archival. He actually said that uh, I've won your right to be a white country, do it as, as you will. So that's when every state of Australia went about writing up these Aboriginal, um, uh, these Aborigines Acts. So Western Australia was governed over by the 1905 Aborigines Act. From that point there, they, they wanted to make changes to those policies and tighten the tighten it up a bit uh, in 1936, or 39, sorry, and obviously the war intervened. Um, so everything was put on hold to about 1948. And then that's when they changed all the policies of the Aborigines Act through to an understanding of assimilation. So here in this great country are nations of people from 1948 through to 1967 lived under the assimil assimilation policies, which were based on the Charles Darwinist theory of biological absorption, uh, you know, the survival of the fittest. And it was during this period of 48 to 67 where it was viewed in the eyes of the law legally to, that it's the right thing to take part Aboriginal natives from their parents 
and to bring them up in a Western ideal and they would then marry white people and then they would have lighter children knowing full well that there are no throwbacks with Aboriginal people or natives in this country. Uh, they would then marry white people and have whiter children. And the whole purpose of it was that this nation wanted to breed out the scourge of black people. And uh, that's quite confronting. Um, and if you look, Caroline, if you look in the 50s in the US and other places, 1950s, that there were changes afoot with regards to equal rights. And the, and the US uh, during that time were living under segregation. And that was kind of, how do I say, uh, enforced more so in terms of transportation. So, you know, you got Rosa Parks, if you know of her, you know, she, she got on the bus one day and refused to sit up the back because she said, I can sit anywhere. I'm not going to be told where to sit in terms of my colour. Um, now, asked later on in her life as to why she did that because she would have understand the ramifications because her case and that of Emmett Till's, they were the catalyst for the militant edge of the civil rights movement over there. She actually said that, you know, she came to a realisation in her life that the moment she made a decision, that that diminished all the fear that she had, which is an interesting thought. A lot of us live in this yay or nay scenario and create turmoil all around us. But the point is, is that Australia could see that these changes would be confronting us as the nations of people and how behaviours of the past will see us wanting, you know. So how do we make a difference here in terms of equal rights? And the problem was that it's steeped in legalities. Uh, it was tied to the constitution. Natives weren't recognised, uh, Aboriginal people in the constitution. Uh, and so to, to make a difference in terms of, you know, equality here, uh, we had to first get to a point of recognising Aboriginal people in their own country. That's the crazy thing, Caroline. We weren't even considered as anything in the eyes of the law here in this great mm -hmm. country. So with the Constitution, you go to a referendum, and it's always about one question, the referendum, um, so it's when every child, uh, every um, voter above 18 has to go to the polls. And the question in the 1967 referendum was that, do we or do we not count the natives on the census? So that then suggests you're recognised. If you are recognised on the census, you are a citizen and subject to Commonwealth law and all the privileges that come with that. Previously, we weren't. A lot of people suggest that we were considered on the flora and fauna list. But that's that's a, a little bit of a myth. Um, we were managed by fisheries, the fisheries department. Um, but generally, we were viewed as being absolutely nothing. We had no status. So the entire country goes to the polls, and it was the biggest referendum we had. And, you know, it was around 98% 90, I think said, yes, we should count these natives on the census. Um, and uh, so that started up a period of, how do I say, uh, addressing some of the wrongs. So our prime minister at the time, Gulf Whitlam, he was a Labor prime minister and he flew to the Northern Territory, if you know the Northern Territory in the north of Western Australia, of Australia, sorry, 
And he confronted an elder up there that had been fighting for land rights and recognition of his cultural land for some 20-odd years. And he, and he, gave, he poured the sand back in his hand, all the while saying that Australia as a nation can't move forward um, as a nation of people until Aboriginal people take their rightful positions. But what he forgot to say was that, then this is in around 1971 too, that here we are sitting out on a journey that finishes in five generations' time because that's how long it'll take to undo all the injustices of the past. Are you with me? Uh, yeah. So we're a generation and a half into that. Now people are representing, they're dusting themselves off. Um, but I do get a little bit concerned about others who look at our story or look at our positionings and still have a judgment that's centred around ridicule or vitriol. Um, why aren't they doing this? Why are they like this? And so forth and so forth. Not understanding it's a humanitarian process to undo, you know, yeah. bad things. So here we are and we're in a period of reconciliation in this great country. Uh, a lot of people are sitting down and listening a lot more to other stories um, and I'm confronted with that literally on a daily basis. But I don't think it's reconciliation we're going through. I think it's a big stage of conciliation because my, my position with it is how on earth can you reconcile with someone or something you had nothing to do with nor know anything about? There's a lot of confusion about this reconciliation process. But if you step up and say, well, it's conciliation, and that's a whole quantum shift of others who are prepared to sit down and listen to the stories of others. Now, uh, and if it's done appropriately, you can have human beings get to a point where they make a value judgment, be it positive or negative is not the issue. It's that they've actually squarely sat down and said, Caroline, I'll listen to you. But no, I'm not just going to listen. I'm going to truly listen to a point where I start to feel your story. And if I start to feel your story, Caroline, I can then make a value judgment as to whether or not I want to enrol or choose to enrol myself in who you are and the processes you're involved in. Are you with me? Yeah. So that's where we're at today. So, you know, I've started to come out and share my life a little bit more and it's taken me many, many years to get to that. Um, obviously, I'm part Aboriginal. I don't know who my father was. Um, my mother on her deathbed, she said to me, I don't know, I was, there was too much drink and too many white men. So she, she can't remember. But yeah. when I was born, and here I am, 1969, go figure. Um, I was born on the reserve out at Laverton on the edge of the Great Victoria Desert in the northeastern gold fields of Western Australia. And uh, at that time, uh, it was difficulties with her going to hospital. So she had me in the bush. So my birth certificate, it's actually got reserve Laverton. Go figure. And, uh, you know, they took me in and then, there's a lot of dynamic going on in that first two years of my life where she was in and out of jail and, um, you know, I was cast around in various homes. But I then ended up going and living with her in a place called Leonora, which is about 100 kilometres away from Laverton on the reserve there. Now, my sister, who's a few years older than me, she tells me this, but I can't remember myself, that on one particular day... Mum was downtown 
and a car rolled into the reserve and they asked her if we wanted to go for a ride. So she says, yes, let's go for a ride in this car. We ended up 300 kilometres away in Kalgoorlie and then they bailed us onto a plane, uh, flew us to Perth. And my sister says that I cried all the way down to Perth on the plane and banged my head on the window. It's probably why I have an innate fear of flying today. But um, so we get to Perth and the first place that they put my sister and I was uh, an institution called Heathcote. And at the time, it was the biggest mental asylum in Western Australia. So that was my first home at two. Uh, and then from there to a place called Norseman on the edge, edge of the Nullarbor on, on the air highway where they put us into a Churches of Christ mission with 100 odd others, others, children. And then from And at this stage, Tony, sorry to interrupt you, you were so young, but had you realised even at that age that something wasn't right? Yes. Or do you re even remember that? Absolutely. Yeah. I can always remember the innate sadness and loneliness of those periods in my life, particularly as a you know two and three and four, five-year-old child fighting for your way through a myriad number of others. Um, not knowing where you are going to be in the next month. So they, they took us from that Churches of Christ mission and put us on a Brethren mission out of Kalgoorlie, if you've heard of Kalgoorlie. It's in Western yeah. Australia. It's like the gold capital of the country. Uh, and then from there, I ended up all up, I think, 16 institutions, forward slash foster homes, before I was 15. So, um, you know, I grew up pretty angry and bitter, Mm -hmm. and uh, not knowing and understanding why. And if you look at the theory of attachment, and I've had a little bit of a wander through it the other day, it talks about the impact on a person psychologically uh, and spiritually when they're taken away from their mother uh, before the age of seven. It impacts 25, 35, 45 years later. Um, people don't understand the enormity of what's important in life, how to manage the emotional breakdown within themselves, and also an innate breakdown of spirituality. Mm. Um, so I, in those days, uh, for those of us that have children, I think that you would understand that children look forward to Saturdays or Sundays every weekend simply from the point of view that they're all wanting to play sport. And when you put your child into a soccer team at five, he'll be banging you in the head at 6am or she'll be banging you in the head at 6am in the morning, fully kitted out, ready to play, you know, and they gravitate towards it, whether it be hockey, basketball, swimming, you name it, um, because they receive a lot of affirmation from others that suggests, hey, you're a good person. We love you in our team. Come back. We can't wait to have you back. So children innately gravitate towards affirmation. And I did, certainly. So I use football, the Australian rules code here in Australia, um, to rise above a lot of the trauma that I experienced. So essentially what it was was like windscreen wipers in my head. But every time I played football or at least Windscreen wipers would kick in and they'd wipe away all of these dark clouds that I had in my head, you know. Um, so I, I continued with football, um, but, you know, after a period of time, 
because of the enormity of my past, my windscreen wipers broke down. And I think a lot of us would understand when I say that, you know, we all experience that at some stage, some more so than others. Um, so I, I finished my football career quite young uh, and there has ensured 30 to 35 years plus of on a daily basis literally trying to repair my windscreen wipers. Um, and it has been a journey. It's, you know, I've been very angry. Uh, lots of substance abuse um, uh, and so forth. And in growing up, I used to wonder why others would gravitate towards it. Now, now as an adult, it's experienced that I truly understand, trust me. Um, so it's been a journey. Um, a lot of my people who have suffered as a result go through the same thing. And I look and understanding and coming to a point of uh, realising that it's, this isn't something that's going to end tomorrow. This is something that will probably be with me for the rest of my life. And two, Caroline, that the fallout from what we know as the stolen generations uh, is intergenerational. It's been proven that the trauma from these experiences will pick up down the road with your children and your grandchildren. I'm certainly experiencing that with my son. He has at times said to me, look, I'm so angry because of what happened to you and Nan. And I say to Nick that it's a journey that I need to deal with, but he said I can't help it. It's a, it's a position within him. So I, I, I feel for him and I've had some sadness over his situation, but it is what it is. So there's a lot going on in this country to address the fallout from the stolen generations. If you look at the Aboriginal Health Services, you know, the mental health facilities there, if you look at sporting groups, if you look at educational groups who are starting to share the story a lot more so that others understand. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a good little time, particularly in the last couple of years with this fallout from COVID, because everybody are resetting their relationships with each other. Uh, and yeah, and they're starting to listen a lot more. And it's strange that it takes such an such a enormous fallout or impact than something as vicious as this virus for people to start listening. I think when you're confronted by your own mortality, people start to listen a lot more, you know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And that's... That Tony, tell me, um, sorry to interrupt you, um, growing up for you, how was that, like what were the challenges on a day-to-day -day basis with relationships with others? Did you find that you were treated differently or did you find by being put into these white systems that um, you were treated equally or, or how oh, was no, that growing up? Oh, look, because I played sport, and this is a strange thing, if you run around the oval or whatever and kick a ball or throw a ball, somehow others treat you a lot different and that you're somehow on a pedestal. Um, and uh, I, I, I could tell that a lot of the... The words that weren't spoken to me speak, spoke louder than the words that were. Um, and, you know, gradually over a period of time, a lot of things would come back to me and I'd be hearing these things and I'd get immensely angry and bitter and stuff. But uh, essentially now it's a water off a duck's back. Uh, mm. I'm able to deal with it a lot better. But the, the one thing, Carol, I'm glad you've asked that question, okay? The big fallout for me today is reconciling the guilt and the shame within me 
about uh, not managing my story better because mm. what happened was I was enforcing emotions onto others that were born out of past experience and negatively influencing everything that was going on. Isn't that the age-old thing? Oh, if I only knew back then what I know now. Mm-hmm. So I have immense sadness about the relationships with those that weren't able to endure um, because yeah. of my inability not to, uh, to, to manage my, my emotions. Um, but there and again, it is what it is. Um, and we have, to, we have to keep moving forward and step forward. So I've written and I've spoken to others. And for me to reconcile my behaviours from the past, I felt that was the right thing to do so that they understood mm-hmm. why I was the way I was, you know, not suggesting today I'm, you know, I'm all cured and I'm so better for it and what have you. I still have a journey yeah. and uh, I'd hope be hopefully around for a little bit longer than what I am now. But uh, th- there is a journey ahead still. Um, so I have to be mindful of where I'm at with that journey. So uh, I, I would encourage others, particularly those that don't know, to probably uh, listen a lot more. There's a lot of opportunity for reading. There's a lot of opportunity for viewing. I looked at a movie last night with a person by the name of David Galilpool. He's a full-blooded Aboriginal actor from the Northern Territory who unfortunately just passed on. But the movie is called Charlie's Country. And it was, it's a quite a poignant movie and it was hard-hitting for me. But it talks about, it, it shows all the gamut of uh, loss of culture, uh, socioeconomics, communal ethos, skin grouping laws that are between our peoples and stuff. And it's, it's a fantastic view for anyone for the first time. Uh, who are wanting to consider where we are at today, you know. Um, yeah. And just I think what I would like to say too, um, bearing in mind we've got, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, sorry, Caroline. Take uh, your time. Is um, you look at happiness. I mean, your backdrop there suggests you're, you're happy, all right? Yeah. Um, you got your back to us. That's the only thing. Anyway, um, I had that on my website once and uh, I, had, I, was on, I had my back to everybody and looking out over this vast expanse of land that belonged to us, turns a native title, and I was told to turn around. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Maybe that's a, a hidden message. Yeah. That, uh, I, I was thinking, wow, I was, I was thinking, wow, great panorama, shows me out of my land and I'm looking over and everything. And they said, hmm. No, we just see you back. <laughs> anyway. Wow, yeah. Well, subconsciously I, hiding. I know. I read uh, um, a news, there's a newspaper um, here in Australia that's quite substantial. It's called The Australian. It's a great media outlet. It comes in about, comes about 10 foot wide and 14 sections. But there was an article in there about a writer from New York, a, a female a woman, and she had just finished writing a book and launched it on the New York sellers list, uh, went to the top. And it was about happiness and her consideration of what, the, what are the number one elements of happiness, okay? And um, her first one was a sense of belonging, knowing who you are, where you're from and where you fit. And, Caroline, you, you seem to me to be a very proud Irish, you know, person lady woman 
Um, and you, you can see that, you can hear it in your voice. Um, and certainly with us as Aboriginal people, that's very important in terms of our culture, our land, and all the gamut of things like bush tucker, language, um, you know, sacred sites, all of these dreaming stories and so forth. And that's one where we've gone a little bit scoof in that being taken from our peoples has broken that connection in terms of our sense of belonging. Yeah. And it's a, it's a journey to get that back. Okay. She said that she then said the next one is sense of purpose, knowing why it is that you get up every morning and do what you do. But essentially the third one is, is about having passion for that purpose. So you know, we don't just get up, kind of a figuratively speaking, jump out of bed and race into the day. It's in a perfect world. Um, but the last one was an interesting one. And she said, the most important element of all of this in terms of where we are right here, right now as human beings, is storytelling. Having the ability, and it's what you do on your podcast all the time, to share who and what you are with others in a way that they're not intimidated, that they can sit back and consider your story, truly listen to it and make a value judgment as to whether or not they want to enroll themselves in Caroline and everything that she does. Are you with me? Now, we've, most yeah. of us, particularly the Irish, you guys are bloody good storytellers. Am I right or wrong? <laughs> you, you Especially guys, with a whiskey. You guys can tell stories, trust me. Um, and we've seen, we seem to have that down pat. You know, some stories may be sad or some might be funny or whatever, but it's all a reflection of your sense of belonging in life, your purpose and the passion you have. So what we need to do as Aboriginal people in this country is really get back to our sense of belonging that's been broken through no fault of our own. Continue with our storytelling. Continue. The purpose and your passion that will come, if not already, you know. Um, but the focus is on that, the first one and the storytelling element. And uh, trust me, you'll get to a point of resolution within yourself sooner than later. And that's not yeah. from any expert. I'm no expert. It's just from what I've watched and listened and read about and so forth and all the experiences that I have. Because when I present, people say, oh, this is the expert. Uh, not knowing that, you know, I'm hugely dyslexic. You just ask my admin manager. <laughs> she just rolls her eyes half the time. Um, but, no, it's, you know, the, the, the beauty within human beings is the, the, the ability to share your experiences with others. Uh, but just remember to do that void of the emotion, full of fact, until such time as you have a strong relationship with another. So... Yeah. If that's if that's all, if that's all I can share with you today, Caroline, I really well. I actually um, I don't want to let you go if if it's all right. I wanted to ask you about how you find your mother. Oh, that's an interesting one because when I was about twelve, I think she turned up at the mission that I was on, and she was pretty well scarred up and that. And I was confronted, you know, not even never met her before, and it's sad now because I kind of ignored her at the time, but I was. Hugely conflicted, conflicted, lots of emotional turmoil. But when I was in starting to play, I mean, my sporting career, 
I was taken out to Leonora where she was still living and we went to the reserve where she was on and it was corrugated iron and tarpaulins and stuff and she lived in a pretty run-down situation. But she was in a little bit of a circle um, with others, family members, and they were all drinking wine, you know, the big flagons of wine. <laughs> I can always remember they were passing it around. and So they made me sit near her and... She came up and went to hug and kiss me, but she was, you know, smelt and it was it was it was awful. And she she got up and walked a few feet away and she went to the toilet and defecated. So I jumped in my the car that they'd taken me there and I said, take me back to the boys' home. I'd rather be there. And it took me 10 years to deal with that issue. And I found it very, very difficult to reconcile what happened. Yeah. In hindsight, looking back, I understand why now um, from the point of view that she had her spirit broken. She had eight of her children taken from her with no right of recourse, not knowing where they were, with two of them being buried by the government and we still don't know where they're buried, you know. So uh, I believe that any other woman that would have been afforded her experiences arguably would have been behaving the same way. Because you, if for those of you that have children, particularly mothers, that is an eternal bond that there's no words that can describe the depth of it. You know, yeah. it goes beyond what we know now as a physical realm here in this world. Um, so that, that was a difficult one. But in the end, when she, when she passed on, I buried her with dignity that she never had in life. And I hope that some way, somewhere, um, she actually is proud of what I do because that's the big leveller in life. If you can't honestly sit up and say that your mother is proud of you, you may want to have a look at what you're doing, you know. Some of us may not have a relationship there or mum may have passed on and I respect that. But essentially, um, she's the one that I always go back to in a spiritual sense and suggest, yeah, look, I've effed up <laughs> and I've you know, done all these weird and wonderful things. But I honestly believe that there are some things in my life that I'm currently doing that she'd be proud of, that she would be immensely proud of. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I wanted to ask you about those things, Tony. You have had some amazing achievements in your lifetime. Um, I came across a list of your achievements. For those that don't know anything about you, what is it that you do now and how you educate others? Well, a lot of public speaking, um, both corporate and otherwise. Um, arguably over 100 odd thousand in the last five, five years or so. Um, and that's been an experience. Uh, it's been good fun. It's been amazing to get to a point of understanding that not too many people know about things, particularly those that suggest they're somewhat technically endowed. But how, how many derelict technically endowed people do you see laying around simply because of their inability to have relationships? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, and um, I, I uh, do a lot of... Um, consultancy, high-level consultancy with resource development. I did do a lot of that 
in the last few years. Um, I've kind of realised over 100 million um, benefits in, in cash for my people, purely commercial, um, in land use agreements with resource, and I'm really proud of those. Have very good relationships with the people as a result of that, and I just yearn sometimes to get back out there, out there because sometimes I get cabin fever stuck here in Perth. Um, so I do that, and I do a lot of other kind of Aboriginal-related, um, how do I say, experiences. For instance, you have a very big Aboriginal group in the north of Western Australia who receive immense royalties from the likes of BHP, Rio Tinto, so forth, uh, and they're wanting us to deliver to their team and their Aboriginal members uh, a cultural team building process, which I'm really looking forward to. That'll be in February. And I've done other things and run major events and so forth. So essentially I love getting out there and making a difference and I'm, 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 I'm buoyed about the opportunity that's coming up for us in the new year. I just hope my ankle stands up because I've been rolling in, <laughs> rolling in and out in a wheelchair uh, serious has been if it wasn't for Carola who runs the business with her rolling me in and out and putting up with me I would never have been able to do it so Fremantle yeah. Ports, Toyota uh, you know Perth Mint uh, oh you name it I've done quite a bit of podcasts with nationally renowned entities um, and I'm looking forward to doing a lot more of that moving forward I think you'll have a lot of interest from this podcast of people that would love to have you. Even maybe we'll get you to Sydney here if um, if your ankle mends. I've, I look, I have no problem with doing that. The only thing is that I have to take some sleeping tablets on the plane. <laughs> I hate planes. I don't know what um, it is, but the moment there's a fraction of turbulence, I think, oh, we're going down now. And if we're over the bite, yeah. we're over the bite in Australia, oh yeah, but we'll go on the ocean, will save us. But yeah, then I'll get eaten by a great white. I'm the number one yeah. fatalist in the country, Caroline. So, yeah, look, I, I would, I would actually, I would uh, uh, love to do something like that if that's something that you Thanks. see. And um, it's a lot of fun. So when I present, I use two universal mediums: uh, music. That transcends the spectrum, as we always say. Uh, and uh, you have you put messages out there, particularly into the remote communities. Not too many people are receptive, but if you put a put it to a reggae beat or a hip hop beat, then see what happens. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then also humor. Humors and the mm. Irish love their humor. <laughs> they do. Yes, they do. Hey, here's one, just quickly. Um, I've read a lot about the situation that's happened previously in terms of your community and mm. it's it's reminiscent of what's happened with us and in some ways Absolutely. so much more extreme you know single mothers children you know it's just uh, uh, incomprehensible is that the word that people, yeah. people would afford that to others well, it's funny you say that, Tony, because I was just going to say, um, since moving to Australia, obviously, I had no idea the history here. And I find that every country within the school textbooks, they teach you the history they want you to hear. And it's only when you get talking to the children. And um, we have a lot of Aboriginal students, gorgeous girls, 
who have taught me so much that isn't written in the text in history. And um, I, I think our, our histories are very similar in many, many ways, even just our culture and <clears throat> um, our appreciation of family and the importance of our beliefs and coming together. Um, but yeah, absolutely. In terms of the, the things that have happened with women in Ireland who um, had their children taken from them and to this day have not found their children. And it's still very much only coming out of the, the woodworks now on the extreme cases of it. It was not talking about and it's only really being spoken about now exactly the same as your people. And very sad. Uh, there's also a lot of Irish history within the Aboriginal history. And I, I love that. You know, the, the kids say to me, um, they have some grandparents that are Irish and it's beautiful. I love that we connect in that way, but very, very similar. And which, school, what, which state are you in? I'm in New South Wales. Right. Well, so I'm in Sydney. well, New South Wales have bore the brunt of the, with all due respects, European um, settlement. Yeah. I mean, Sydney, within three years, 15,000, gone, you know. And I was watching a movie this morning about the Tumalar Mission that's in regional New South Wales. My Lord, that's one I could suggest you to watch is Tumalar. <coughs> it's a former mission in regional New South Can I have some water, please? Excuse me. Regional New South Wales. And the impact is just incredible. Loss of culture, loss of, you know, uh, family. It's just insane. That is T-O-O-M-A-L-A-H. Available on Netflix. There you go. I will, I will definitely watch that. I love to, to learn more. And um, I wanted to ask you, Tony, from your perspective, um, as I am still very, um, I don't know enough about it. And I, I, like I say, I let you talk because I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. But in terms of an Irish person here on Australia Day, obviously, your people acknowledge that as Invasion Day because that's the day that uh, your your land was invaded. Um, say an Irish person was to have a barbecue on Australia Day, is that upsetting for you and your people, or do you? Is it more more than that? As a whole, when I can't answer mm. for our community as a whole, although the majority of us would consider it as Invasion Day. Um, that's yeah. a quite a confronting word. I don't mm-hmm. normally refer to it as that. But one thing that I've learned as a 52-year-old man, that's been a hard journey to get to a realisation, is who am I to judge others for not knowing? Mm. And that's what we need to get to as a community of Aboriginal people here, that people may appear to be ignorant and offensive and so forth, but through no fault of their own. So I would suggest that we as the Aboriginal community in this great country, we love Australia Day. Love it. We love Australia. It is our country, you know, mm-hmm. um, but we don't like the day. Yeah, so I would say in the next two to three years we would have a serious consideration about changing the date and most fair-minded Australians would actually look at that for what it is and be fair-minded enough to say, look, we understand, you know. So it's, it's, it's just that date. We see that date as a beginning of tyranny. Mm. It's been hard. I mean, if you read a lot of the stuff with regards to New South Wales and 
the fallouts from massacres in recent regional New South Wales, it's just insane. But mm. I guess uh, it's, it's, it's for all of us to consider and learn about and see how that we can Absolutely. move forward together. Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for so long and thank you for teaching me. Um, I didn't know you, your daughter's name was Bridget. Yes. That just connects with even more. How beautiful. She's gorgeous. Black flowing Irish hair. Oh, part gorgeous. Part Irish. Go figure. I hope you celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. yeah, I do. I've got a very good friend here and he's just, he's out of control on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> It's like, good on them. And I go down to my local watering hole and I reckon a third of them down there would be a bunch of mad Irishmen that all sit yep. there every day, say all the same stories, all laugh at it, louder than everybody else, but they're a good bunch of people. Absolutely. Tony, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely.